Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Imagine you knew the day you were going to die. Well, today's guest didn't only know when she was going to die, but how it was going to happen. And she knew about it months ahead of time, and nobody would pay her any attention. Today on the show, we have near-death experiencer Stephanie Arnold, and she knew that she was going to die giving birth to her baby boy. And it's exactly what happened. She died for 37 seconds, clinically dead for 37 seconds, and was able to come back. And her story is remarkable, to say the least. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Stephanie Arnold. How are you doing, Stephanie? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We've had a wonderful pre-interview conversation, which we were like, we're hey, maybe maybe we should start recording this conversation. <laughs> we're done. We're done. We had everything. We got the family connections. It's all good. We're done. It's, it's all good. Exactly. <laughs> My Latina sister. Um, so... So your story is fascinating to me because it's, you know, we've had a lot of NEDs on before, but your story is really interesting uh, because you saw it coming and we're going to get into that in a minute. So the first question I asked for you is how was your life prior to this information coming into your life? Like, Hey, you're going to die soon. Like, were you always kind of into, you know, uh, intuition, like you were like an empath, were you able to figure, figure things out? Did you feel things? Or was this like out of nowhere, all of a sudden you're like, Hey, you're going to die when you give birth. (laughs) It's so horrible. Um, so I had moments, intuitive moments as a kid, my grandmother is from Cuba and we talked a little bit about the Cuban connection between Mm -hmm. us. And, um, and so she was a huge believer in ESP, extrasensory perceptions. And, and people would always talk, call my, my abuela una santera, oh, you know, so, yeah. so santera more like witchy and everything. Sure, people sure, were, sure. were a little intimidated by her, but for your audience who were like, what the hell is a santera, you know? So <laughs> santera so, for everybody. So everybody is a, a santera is basically a, a kind of a witch doctor in, in Cuban lore. It's kind of Caribbean there's white magic and black magic. I actually have members of my family who went through the whole process, wore white for a year, like, oh, the, the whole, the whole, survey. it's a thing. It's a religion. It's a, it's a thing. And ask any Cuban or any Puerto Rican or any Caribbean. Yeah. They're like, Hey, I don't know about it, but I ain't going to mess with it. It's kind of like voodoo in, in, in the Haitian culture. hundred percent, hundred percent. And so, so, you know, people would, you know, my grandmother would see things and, and she would express them. And so when I was 10 years old, I was 3000 miles away from her and I was very close to my grandmother and, and we look a little bit alike and we're the only ones in the family that do in that respect. My, both of my parents are redheads. We look nothing alike, but so I was 3000 miles away and I felt my grandmother's fatal heart attack. And in that moment, I talked to my dad and I was like, have you spoken to Abuela? And he's like, no, 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 but I'll talk to her tomorrow. And it was that moment. And I was scarred by it because I felt it so strongly. It was just this overall sadness. And then a few years later, my uncle Marvin, who's my mother's 
brother, um, I hugged him and we're Jewish and in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur services, which were, you know, a few days, I hugged him. He's very healthy. He ran five miles a day. And I had this overwhelming sadness that he was going to die. It would be the last time I would see him. And two days later, he had a heart attack and died. And as a kid, you think you're willing it to happen. I had no one to talk to about it. And I felt like I thought it and it happened. So I shut it down. I didn't want to know from it. I didn't want to hear from it. I didn't want to talk about it. It was definitely scary. And so nothing like that had happened intuitively until um, until this incident where it was my own foreboding that I ultimately heard. So, so tell us the story. Tell yeah. us the story of how you knew what was going to happen. Uh, so I met my husband, married him, moved to Chicago from LA. We worked in, in TV for most of my career. And um, and so just so your audience knows, I'm not a histrionic neurotic person. I, I work extremely well under pressure. My husband's a PhD economist from the University of Chicago, very level-headed, very grounded. Um, and we get married and I moved to Chicago and we have our first child and it was a difficult process having children. So I had to go through IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. It's done outside and inside of the body. And, and, and we had, after three rounds of IVF, we had a beautiful, healthy baby girl after, and the only complication I had was that she was too big and I had to have a C-section, but it wasn't, it wasn't complicated other than that. And then the second child, Jacob, that I got pregnant with, that was after seven rounds of IVF. And um, and so first half of the pregnancy, the first 20 weeks of the pregnancy, no problem. We had no issue. And at the 20-week ultrasound, I was diagnosed with something called a placenta previa, which is basically where the placenta is growing on top of the cervix. And, you know, it's a one in 200 risk, right? It's, it's, it's very complicated. Basically as the belly grows, as the uterus grows, the placenta will move out of the way and you deliver. But worst case scenario is you have a C-section and okay, I, I've had one before. That's not, I don't have any fear of that. Um, however, when the doctor said I had this placenta previa, I, it startled me. And I look at my husband, I said, I, I have a very rare blood type, O negative, and which is 7% of the population. I said, I don't want to be special in any other category. And I have a bad feeling about this. And of course, my husband, who's very level-headed says, honey, we don't have all the information, relax. You have great prenatal care. You're in great hospitals. Um, I think we'll be fine. But, you know, I'm total type A personality and, you know, I'm very research oriented. So I get back to, to the apartment and I'm typing on placenta previa. What's that? Then turns, if it happens to turn into a placenta accreta, which is what Kim Kardashian had, where the placenta marries itself to the uterus. If that happens, you might bleed. If that happens, as I keep reading, you might hemorrhage. If that happens, you might need a hysterectomy. And if that happens, during the hemorrhage, you and the baby could lose your life. And I sat back and I looked at the computer and I told my husband, I said, this is going to happen to us. The only difference is the baby's going to be fine. I said, but I'm going to be dead on the operating table. What, what, what was it? Did you see visions? Did you have a voice? Like, what, was it an I instant? Call it, I call it a knowing. You don't know how you know, you just do. Okay. You know, when your wife looks at you and says, do not do this, like she just knows, <laughs> you know, she might be doing this, like get you to do something, but, but there's certain things men and women have it. I, I hear more women than men, like have this more instinct and especially maternal instinct. They have this feeling and I, I call it a knowing you don't know how, you know, you just, I just knew this was going to happen. And so again, my husband's like, what you're thinking is going to happen is a half, a half, a half percent chance of happening. And it did not settle me because even though he, it made sense to him, I mean, my husband was a former Air Force pilot. So for him, all the, the mechanics were working fine. All the gauges were working fine. All the tools were working fine. So what's the problem? Because you have a crazy thought in your head that you, maybe, maybe there's too much testosterone running through your body with this baby boy, right? So he's just thinking like all of these crazy things. So I was like, okay, fine. So 
I didn't just talk to him. I talked to everybody. I talked to nurses, doctors, you know, every visit I had, I told the, the doctors, this was going to happen. This was going to happen. They're like, Stephanie, there's no indication that this is going to happen. And in their defense, the tests were negative. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So at some point, um, I was told that if I deliver and I have an emergency situation where I need a hysterectomy, the my OB will not be the one to do the procedure. They will transfer to maternal fetal medicine. So, but I don't want an MFM to do it. I want a gynec to a gynecological oncologist to do it. And the reason why you want a gynec to do it is because they have more experience with high risk reproductive organ surgeries, and with that. Um, that information and armed with that, I made an appointment with the head of Gynoc at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, which is a huge teaching hospital, which delivers 12,000 babies a year. It is not easy to get an appointment with a Gynoc, the head of Gynoc. When you are not suffering from any kind of cancer, you are a healthy pregnant woman. You have no diagnostics that tell you that you need a hysterectomy. So ultimately Jonathan went with me to each and every appointment with with me probably because again, he didn't want to get divorced. So he's sitting with me <laughs> in this, this waiting room with all of these women. And so they have IVs in their arm. They have no hair on their head. They have, they're suffering from, from cancer and they're barely surviving. And so he's like, I am embarrassed to be here. And I said, I don't know what to tell you because I, everybody's telling me that all they see is an open highway. And I see an 18 wheeler headed straight for me. And so maybe this doctor has heard of a patient who has these kind of foreboding thoughts and maybe just maybe they will give me something to do or some sort of homework assignment due to, to give me some diagnostics about this is what's actually going on in my body. So we go in, we meet the head of Gainan. He's like, Ms. Arnold, how can I help you? The, the resident is taking notes and the guy, because I explained my placenta previa is going to turn into an accreta. I'm going to need a hysterectomy. My husband likes to say that it was very mafia-like. It's like, I see you, you see me, you're my doctor. And so, <laughs> That's awesome. so he goes, so he sits back, the resident stops talking and he's like, um, Mrs. Arnold, have you been on the internet? And I was like, why? Yes, I have doctor, but this is going to happen. And he's like, okay, what I'd like you to do is I would like you to, to have an MRI. If the MRI is positive for an accreta, then I will schedule myself at your mandatory C-section at 37 weeks. And then we will take care of it then. And I felt better because now I had something to do, maybe a little bit more invasive that wasn't going to hurt the baby, but at least to give me more information. I do the MRI. The MRI is negative for an accreta. Jonathan says, you should feel better. And I said, I feel worse because now I'm running out of people to tell this crazy foreboding story to. So real quick, let me stop you there for a second uh, because I am a husband. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I have to, I'm just trying to sit in your husband's uh, chair here for a second. Um, this absolutely sounds insane. And, yeah. and, you know, we all go through moments of insanity and I've had a pregnant woman in my life. Yeah. I have children. So I understand that it's such a, it's such a tightrope because you just don't, you want to be supportive, but and you, you don't want to get killed by her and you don't want to get killed by her. Um, because I was also, um, you know, Latina. Uh, so, but there's a, at a point when everybody, everything, yeah. the tests, there's nothing anyone no. can see other than you saying, yeah, I know, I know it says it's black, but I know it's really white. It's yeah. you're going against everything you see. So how did your relationship handle this kind of stress? You know, luckily my husband says that I am the love of his life. <laughs> and, luckily. <laughs> and, yeah. And he is, he is mine. Um, but I think that if you don't have a strong enough foundation right. for that love, yeah. you're going to be like, this bitch is crazy and I'm out, right? Like, you know, I'll, we'll deal with a custody situation after he, you know, what I sound, I know, I know, I totally understand his point of view. I mean, even on the Netflix show that we're on, you can see the way that he talks and the way that I'm rolling my eyes at him because, you know, but his brain functions a certain way and I cannot right someone who thinks in data and science and how his foundation is built. I cannot 
you know, change his way of thinking to, to adapt to mine. Right. So, so I, it took me a long time to understand that um, years even because I felt I wasn't listened to, I wasn't protected. So what ended up happening was um, we, we get to a point where my doctor's like, okay, well, why don't you have a consultation with anesthesia? Um, I said, fine. I have a phone call with anesthesia. She's like, I explain what's going to happen. They say, you know, this is where you recover, that you have epidural. And again, I go through my whole spiel. And so she's like, you know, Mrs. Arnold, we're in a teaching hospital. We prepare for all of these emergencies. Um, I hope I made you feel better. And I said, she said, I'll never forget the last words you said. And the last words I said were, it is what it is, right? This was the last, the last That's person it. I could talk to. That's it. So then I took to Facebook. I said, um, if anyone has my blood type, I'm going to need it. Jonathan was like, no, don't. Take it down. Ass. Don't spread your crazy on social media. <laughs> exactly. Right. You probably <laughs> Because then he's getting phone calls. What's going on with stuff? You know, what's and it's not that I said, I wrote, if anybody has my blood type, I'm going to not that I believe that they could submit their blood, but maybe again, just like with the guy, not maybe somebody had a crazy relative that, that had this kind of foreboding. And what does that wow. mean? You know, maybe they could, they could tell me, I think you should try this kind of test. And maybe because I was racing against the clock. If you imagine being buried alive and you imagine like you're sitting there and you're just waiting and, and people are tossing the dirt on top. You, I'm like, I'm trying to take my last breath. And by the way, when somebody gives you an expiration date and says, okay, this is the day that you're going to die. And you say, spend the time with your family, enjoy those moments, have those fun times. You know, I failed all of that. I didn't do any of that. And say to you, because all I did was focus on like, how am I going to save my life? No one is listening to me. So I have to do this. And so Jonathan would spend really beautiful time with the family and trying to calm me down. And I'm like... I'm going to die. I'm going to die. die. I was in Starbucks at one point. One, one woman says to me, oh, how's your pregnancy going? I'm like, I'm going to die. Oh like I told everybody, but it was, it became, I mean, you'd think it was a joke. And so like, even in gym, the trainer's like, you know, you're not going to die. Get up and do this workout. I said, no, I'm, I'm being serious. This isn't a joke. And so like, they all think it's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's chicken crazy. little, it's chicken little syndrome. Like this, it, 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 it's you really, everyone's like, this guy's not falling. You're going to be fine. And you're like, oh, you're hormonal. You're pregnant. It's, it's going to be fine. You've gone through this already. I can't, I can't even comprehend like how I would handle that as a husband, as a partner. It's just such a difficult place to be because that is, because men are just generally wired. Like this is this, and it's very ones and zeros. Yeah. And I, and I can, I can appreciate that now, but in the moment I'm like, I'm the love of your life. Wake the fuck up. You know, and, so I said, and, and, and the other thing was, is like, here it is. I am feeling like there's something, there's this other vibration going on. Like I'm feeling something. And if he doesn't believe that there's something beyond this realm, is that it? Is our, our love over? Like, I'm dead, gone, and that's it. And my children are not going to feel me around. My husband's not going to feel me around, especially if I'm going to haunt him and he's having sex with somebody in our bed. Like, I want him to know I am still here. You're so Latina. Oh, my God. You're I'm, so, I'm still here. You're so Latina. It's not even funny. Uh, <laughs> right? So, so hilarious. No, but okay. So so you're going through all this process. Yeah. Um. By the way, during this whole process, is it just the knowing? Are you getting visions? Are you getting, oh, no, I'm getting dreams? Vision. Dreams? Oh, no, it's, it's I'm awake. It's I had one point. My daughter was a year and a half too, um, and I was taking her on a stroller, and you know we were walking across the park, and it was a winter day, and you know I was explaining how the fountain, when it's flowing, is beautiful, and then the fountain turned in my mind's eye to blood and started rushing, and well, very I very Kubrick, it, very Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't a fucking movie. It was my life. And so all of a sudden I think, by the way, am I allowed to curse on your podcast? It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> okay. So then God forgives. <laughs> so then I'm like, I had a visceral reaction to a hemorrhage in my body. And I grabbed wow. the stroller and I, I call my husband. I said, meet me in the, in the emergency room. So I go to the emergency room and they triage me and they're like, Miss Arnold, are you okay? I said, no, I'm bleeding. And you know, I was wearing black leggings. And I have no idea. And so they were like, no, you're not. Amniotic fluid's fine. Everything's fine. And my husband's like, oh, thank God. It's just, it's a false alarm. And I'm like, no, this is a warning. 
It was so. I mean, I mean, listen, listen, Stephanie. I mean, I have to. I mean, you sound absolutely mad. I mean, you, you, you sound absolutely mad. And if I was, I'd be like, I, I don't know what else to do. Like you could just, I mean, you can tell me the sky is purple, but I keep looking up and it's blue. Like, I don't know what the, I love you, but I don't know what to tell you. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I have no idea from his perspective if he was rolling. I, you know, he's very private. So I have no idea whether he said anything to any friends or anything. Like my wife's fallen off the deep. I know inside he thought maybe there was something wrong with the baby and he didn't want to articulate that. So he was like, maybe that was something that was making me a little crazy. So um, could you, could you imagine? It's like, he's like, Hey, maybe it's not, you're about to die. Maybe something's wrong with the baby. And now you have something else to think about us. And go Right. No, it's, it was too much. It was too much, but I was so, you know, as a producer, you just come up with solutions. And so I was very concentrated on who do I need to prepare to be in the OR at the time of delivery? I was so confident this was going to happen that I'm like, everybody needs to be in place to make this happen. And so whether, and, and I tell people this all the time. I mean, women come up to me and like book events and everything. They're like, by the 10th time, the doctor said, you're, you're crazy. I would have shut up. I said, then you would have stayed dead because the reality is, is that, you know, you will never regret speaking up and being wrong because people judge you all the time. They were judging me every single second and thinking I was crazy, but in the chance that you are right, it's not worth staying quiet if it's going to save your life. Absolutely. If you got something to say, just because if you would have kept quiet, imagine if you would have done all this quietly to yourself. No, no, there, I couldn't. So I will get to that. So I'll, I'll speed up. Okay. So, I mean, so ultimately, you know, I wrote goodbye letters. I sent out goodbye letters. I told people, I know you're thinking, like, this is amazing. It's crazy. It's crazy. But you know what? At this point, this is what's helping doctors understand that there's something else going Some, on. There's so, something happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so at 36 weeks to the day, my husband is on a business trip and I'm giving my daughter breakfast and, you know, I start bleeding on the kitchen floor and I know that today's the day. So I send him a text saying, you know, we're going to deliver today. And so he stops meeting. He gets on a plane. We're Skype chatting when I'm triaged at the hospital. The doctor said, you know, the ORs are very quiet right now. I know you've been stressed this whole time. Let's go ahead and get Jacob out. Um, Adina was playing and, you know, I kissed her a million times um, because I was convinced it was the last time I was ever going to see her. And then I'm Skype chatting with my husband and I told him he's made me the happiest woman in the world and I love him and please don't blame this child and please take care of our children. And, you know, and it was more like my goodbye letter to him and he still wasn't getting it. So he said, where do I meet you? And I said, the eighth floor recovery, hopefully. And that was the last um, conversation I had. So they take me down to the OR and I try one more time. I tell my doctor, there is something wrong. You need to put me under general anesthesia. And she's like, Stephanie, I'm not going to put you to sleep. I know you're nervous, but Jonathan, because Jonathan's not here, but I'm here for you. If I put you to sleep, I put the baby to sleep. It's not good. And that was it, right? Epidural in, I'm delivering this baby no matter what. And they're wheeling me into the room that's going to give life to my son. And I am I'm 100% convinced that this is the room that's going to take my life. So they set me up when you have a C-section, your arms are in a T, there's a curtain in front of your face, the room is really cold and it's bone chilling cold for me because the fear is palpable now because I know the minute that he gets delivered, I am no longer here. So imagine that you can see the 18 wheeler headed straight for you. They, no one else can see it. No one else. Everybody is looking at the clock, doing their job, you call doing roll call, everything else. They cut, they take care of Jacob. Jacob's delivered happy and healthy, no problem. And seconds later, I'm dead. You flatline. Flatline. Jeez, I'm I'm not your husband and I'm stressed the hell out of this story. <laughs> Cause I'm there with you. Cause I had everything you just went through, you know, my wife went through very similar stuff, not, not the, not the near death experience stuff, but 
I'm there. I was I was in the room when it happened, you know, when I gave And he would he would have been there to this day. He feels guilty that he wasn't there. And I said, you know what? Um, God has different plans. I said, you know, it's one thing to hear that your wife flatline, it's another thing to see it. I said, because if you saw it, oh, no. they would have taken you out immediately and you could never get that. And he to this day, he's like, I should have been there. At least I would have been there. And I was like, you know what? God works in mysterious ways. So what happens after you fly? So the baby's out, Jacob's out, everyone's good. And then you baby's just, out. and what happens to you? What, so, do you have a cardiac event? Yeah, I have, went into cardiac arrest. I ended up having a very rare pregnancy complication called an amniotic fluid embolism. And it's a one in 40,000 risk where amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream. And if you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into anaphylactic shock. And in most cases you don't make it. If you've heard about it, you know, they're, uh, you know, you know, someone who's died just to give you perspective, you know, Northwestern delivers 12,000 babies a year at the time when I delivered, they had 10 amniotic fluid embolisms, 10 in their entire history. They've been around for almost 30 years. Um, six did not make it. And the other three are in permanent vegetative states. I am the first to have survived at that time for a full blown AFE. And there was something in the operating room. I predicted a lot, but there was something in the operating room I did not predict. And that was, there was a crash cart and there was extra blood available and I needed both of them. So your blood and your blood, obviously. My blood. So in a typical C-section, there's about six units of blood. And because I'm O negative, you know, having that blood is, is important because I can only receive that blood. I can give the, my blood to anyone, but I can only receive O negative. So there's six units of blood. Typically there were 20 units of blood, or I don't know how much that was there with already defrosted, cycled and ready for me. And so, and there was a crash cart. And later I asked why that was. And the anesthesiologist I had spoken to my last conversation, she said, she didn't feel comfortable that I I, she'd never heard a patient speak so clearly about what was going to happen, had had a baby before and had sought out specialists to save her life. And with that one phone call, she flagged my file incorporating the extra measures to save my life. And that is wow. 100% of my life today. Wow. Because she just had something she told had her, time. something told her you need to have. Yeah. Wow. So, so, oh, so you, so you flatlined, what happened? I flatlined for 37 seconds. They, re, they got me back up. Um, they intubated me and taped my eyes shut. And then the second part of um, an AFE starts, which is your body's inability to clot blood. And so your normal body has 20 units of blood. I was given 60 units of blood and blood product to save my life. Wow. So they, Jacob is fine, healthy, removed and put into the nursery. They put, they stabilized me with a, a ball, a Bakker ball inside and they, they stabilized the hemorrhage and that's when Jonathan arrived. And so when Jonathan gets to the hospital, he texts the doctor, you know, how, how's everything? And she says, Jacob's fine. Stephanie's stable. And he's smart enough to know that's not good. So he gets to the consultation room, anesthesiologist comes in, different anesthesiologist, the intending that was there on my case. And she says, do yourself a favor. Do not look up what an amniotic fluid embolism is, because when you look it up, it's a widower's site. It's like all of the different um, versions of what happens. It is. Um, and then, then he said before she left that if she needs a hysterectomy, this is the doctor we met with two months before and she took note of it. She thought it was odd, um, but she's like, she's stable right now. So he returns to the surgical ICU. I'm on life support. They put me in a medically induced coma and seven hours later, they show that I'm still bleeding. And uh, they call in the gynoc that I had met with to perform the hysterectomy. They do the pathology on the uterus and they show that an accreta had started to form, but where the MRI was, where they, the attachment was it was too early don't know they it didn't pick up um but it was there and so that leaves everybody with a scratch in their head right so on day six um i had kidney failure i had all this too i mean you can take a look at any photos anywhere online but it was pretty bad and no one knew they knew that i was oxygenated but they didn't know how much neurological deficit, how much would be. And so they extubate you to see where you are. And as soon as they extubated me, I looked down at my swollen belly because I'm severely edemic. I look still pregnant. 
And the very first thing I I said was, am I so fucking pregnant? And so Jonathan, <laughs> Jonathan at that moment was like, she's going to be okay. It's, so I knew where I was, but it took, I was in the hospital for a month. And during that process, I had every department in me, on me, around me. And it's their residence because it's a teaching hospital. And they're like, I'm like, they're like, how did you know? And I was like, I don't know, you guys tell me. And they're like, well, foreboding exists prior to an embolus or heart attack, but moments before, maybe a day before, but three months before in the detail that you had, no, I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know what that is. And one doctor actually said, um, I think you need to go spiritual on this one. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And that didn't, didn't set right with me in the moment. I, when we first, you know, it was, it was hard for me to process everything. So, so I get home, I, you know, I'm trying to acclimate friends, family, I'm shell-shocked. Um, physically I'm getting better. I'm out of wheelchair. I get off the, the ports, my kidneys go back online, but psychologically I'm totally messed up. And I was on a talk show and I started to share the story because I went into producer mode. Okay. How can the story help others intuition and sharing this? And I, you know, my feeling was the more I share the story, almost like third person, the further I am away from my trauma. So I, I give a reason, Oh, this is the reason this happened, but it was, it was hard for me to deal with the fact that this all happened to me. So I felt like I was telling a story. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then I go, um, at some point the therapist was like, you know, we can help you get out the trauma. I said, first, I need you to help me to understand how it is. I saw everything ahead of time. And they were like, you know, let's not worry about that right now. I said, no, see, you don't understand. I feel like I, I, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I manifested this, you know, what happens if I think of myself having a heart attack, am I going to have a heart attack? And now everybody, including you, as you're sitting there, if you had heard this story for months and you watch the whole thing come down, you'd be like, damn, okay, well, she obviously is feeling something like, I don't want to be in her line of sight. What happens? Right. You know, it's like, it's really tough. Um, so, so anyway, so we go, um, you know, I said, okay, well, let me talk to somebody. So a friend of mine, a Latina friend of mine said, I think you should go meet with this Cuban, um, what's it called? A regression therapist and regression uses hypnotherapy to take you back into the moments of trauma. So what the, the hopes are is that you could be the observer in those traumas. It's like your, your memory all right, those memories are like film strips stored in your head. And through this hypnosis, you can access them. The pain will not be as severe as it was the first time around, but you can in a calm way, look at things and everything around you. And I really wanted to understand what happened during those three months before. Was I given messages by someone or special force outside of my own? Was I, you know, what happened during the 37 seconds? Cause people wanted to know, what did I see? And then um, what happened after? And so- Can I stop you for a second? So yeah. when you died for those 37 seconds, you have no recollection at that mo up to this point. You didn't see anything. You don't remember anything. No, I was like, they gave me a lot of drugs. It's great. Got it. Okay. So then you go into research and therapy. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I, th I think part of it was, you know, I wasn't afraid to say there's nothing there, but, you know, it was their way to find out because I wasn't getting help the way that I needed it psychologically. And there was nothing typical about my case. So I needed to do something that was atypical when it came to the therapies. And so, um, so I videotaped my therapy. I mean, we did it over Skype. I had split screens. I was like, let me document everything. I didn't know if I'd remember anything. I'd never been hypnotized before. And so, you know, it took well over 30 hours of therapy to get me finally back into the OR. And when she did it, one of the, you know, you could see my body convulse and seize. And then I started explaining what I saw with a complete out-of-body experience which nurse hit the button for the code, which nurse jumped on my chest to give me CPR, what my doctor was doing down by my feet, what the anesthesiologist was doing down by the feet, what my daughter was doing down the hall in the labor and delivery room, what my husband was wearing when I got off the plane, what my mother was doing when I was the third day of my coma. Like there were, there were just all these little things. And 
Um, and when I got done with that session, you could see like there was the sense of relief, like I felt better. And so when the, um, so of course my husband takes a quick gander at it, it's really graphic. He can't, you know, he doesn't want to watch his wife in pain. Uh, he said, the very first thing he says, like, how do you know this isn't a uh, recalled episode of Grey's Anatomy in your head? Mm-hmm. Who said this? And- my husband. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> for all his yeah. PH, for all his PhDs, not a smart. No, it's not smart. No, no smart. No, no smart. No, no smart. No bueno. <laughs> not, no bueno. No bueno. No bueno. So he was like, like, I was like, I called him a lot of names, but you know what? I said, I said, you know what? I. I think the book became a much better book because he pushed me a lot harder. There were certain things that I accepted as spiritual, but for someone's very scientific, he's like, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to take this at face value. That's a really nice story for you to tell at bedtime, but I am not going to accept this for what this is unless there's more proof. So he says, um, so so okay. So I called the therapist. I said, how do you know what I'm telling you is the truth? And she said, well, sometimes the only validation we get is the patient feels better and you feel better. I said, that's not good enough for me. I have witnesses. So I took the tapes. It wasn't hearsay. I took the tapes with my therapy and I handed it to the anesthesiologist and to the OB and I videotaped and recorded their reactions as they watched it. And Jonathan's like, I'm going with you. I don't want this edited. I don't want this TV talk and like everything. So, he's just so fine. He's just, he's just searching for beaten. <laughs> you know, I but but I can understand. I mean, you you can understand if your entire career is based on a, a solid concrete foundation. Sure. And now what I'm telling you, there's a crack in that foundation because not only did I see all of this, I saw hundreds of spirits, and these spirits were not like. And this was in this moment of flatline where somebody said, "Oh, did you see the light?" I'm like, you know, I was an observer watching what was going down. I saw my body on the table, and then I saw my spirit perpendicular. And then as I flatline, I see a shooting star. Now, maybe if I was the eyes of spirit, I would have seen a tunnel of light. I don't know, but that's not what I saw. And so, but I went to this. This heavenly place, it was not, I didn't see God, I didn't see buildings, but I saw hundreds of spirits. And they were like two steps up, like almost a gathering of congregation and people that I knew. And that was lovely. And then there were people that I didn't know. And one being his father, Jonathan's father. And so when I explained that I saw his father and that he had a message because he had a specific coin and he had this um, tweed jacket and I was describing the details of the tweed jacket and describing the details of the coin because the coin was a foreign coin and his father was a foreign service officer and a diplomat so it's you know maybe i could have made shit up in my head but he was like tell my father i said hi right and my father never had a tweed jacket right i'm like okay fine forget about the jacket what about the coin and he's like i don't know what you're talking about stephanie so like all these things i take the so i take the tapes of the doctors the doctors were like um you shouldn't know any of this it's accurate down to where we were standing, what we were doing. And again, on the Netflix thing, you can hear my doctor saying, because I, I said to my doctor, did you say you this can't be happening? This can't be happening. She's like, I did, but in my head. And so, wow. but in her mind, the, she was down by my feet on her mask, covering her mouth, like saying in, in her mask, there's no way, you know, like with all the commotion and the chaos and the screaming and everything that there's no way that I would have heard any of it. And then, you know, and then this nurse, when I went to thank everybody, when I went to say hi to the doctors, you know, this nurse came up to me and she said, you know, Miss Arnold, you don't know who I am, but it's really nice to see you walking again. And I was like, you broke my ribs. And she said, and I do it again to save your life. And I was told later that she went back to her office and cried for a long time because I shouldn't know that she was the one that gave me the CPR. And, uh, (laughs) and so it was accurate down to, I said, and there wasn't just one crash cart, there were two crash carts. And she's like, they're like, um, why? I don't know about that. And then they went back and checked it and it was absolutely accurate. And then I said that my own doctor didn't deliver the baby. And Jonathan's like, she was there. She had blood all over her skin. I said, I know she did, but she didn't deliver the baby. He's like, Stephanie, what are you talking about? Who, who delivered the baby? I said, I said, remember the resident in the gynoc consultation, she delivered the baby. 
And it's like, why would that be? She was on gynoc rotation. And he's like, blah, blah. and so my doctor, I go to my doctor, I said, did you deliver the baby? And she said, no. And I said, did this doctor deliver the baby? And she looks at me, she said, how do you know that? So it was like all of these things. And then with the coin, I, I write about this in the book. I was like, I found out that, you know, I go to Jonathan's mother's sister or whatever. And I'm like, you know, this tweed jacket. He's like, what is he talking about? Of course he had a tweed jacket. It had patches here. I said, yes. And I had green strips. And I go back to Jonathan. I said, what are you talking about? That was his favorite jacket. And he's like, well, if you, what is that herringbone? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. He did. He was just did not want to, did not want to admit I'm it. Like, I'm like, what the heck is herringbone? And so I'm looking up herringbone. It's like the name of a stitch in a tweed jacket. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you really, are you really fighting me on this whole thing? And like the, the coin was a very specific message, which I'll leave your audience with a cliffhanger. So they should read it. But, mm-hmm. but it was, it was down it was so accurate that it's scary and so yeah to me the there's no question not only does consciousness exist because the brain starts shutting down after 20 seconds and yes hearing is the last to go but i most certainly couldn't have seen and my eyes were taped shut and i was on life support and there were just a lot of things that um that happened and and i will tell you that after this whole experience that my doctors have changed the way they practice medicine because on one hand, you know, they're dealing with the emergency and they're, they're saving your life and they're saving your body and they're dealing with the trauma, but they forgot that there was a spiritual soul for person still there and no one was talking to me. And yet I was there and present this entire time. So, wow. I'm just like one, sh- I'm, I'm God smacked by your husband. Uh, <laughs> I just have, look, I could believe you at a certain point, but at a certain point I would just go, yes, I would just, I would, sure. Absolutely. Like tweed. Yes. <laughs> like, yes, I would have just, I, me personally, as a, as a husband, I would have just eventually just gone. Right. Fight. That, fight you on this. that probably would have saved years of therapy, but <laughs> I mean, just, just go. So that's one, but God bless him. I mean, look, I yep. can't, like the stress and the, what he went through on his purse on this side of the fence is, yeah. is remarkable. I can't even, I can't even comprehend it. When you were, when you were dead, when you were legally dead for those 37 seconds. So you, you saw everything that was going on. You saw spirits, uh, a, a group of spirits of, yeah. Of family members and of the tweet jacket yeah. <laughs> uh, and the father and you saw a shooting light. Was there anything else? And then, and what happened when you were brought back in? And by the way, you felt nothing at this time, right? You felt- I felt nothing. You know, I, I talk about how the fact that the moment of death is not painful. That's not, that's not to be scared of because that is, it's not that it's pleasant, but it's, it's peaceful. There's not, the moment of impact is not felt. The actual moment of crossing over is not uh, is not painful. Um, coming back into my body after yeah. going through that was painful. Um, you know, it was the therapist said this is not going to hurt the way it did the first time. She kind of lied. It was not. Um, I felt it in my whole body, I, I wanted to throw up and then coming back in, it's like, you know, the way that I describe it to her was that your soul is tethered by an umbilical cord. And when you flatline, it gets severed, but then because of the, the amount of time, time and space don't exist in this other dimension. And I remember when, you know, we were sending out the manuscript, one, one publisher said, um, she didn't die long enough to make it compelling. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I have that framed. So um, so she didn't die long so, enough to make yeah. it compelling. So yeah, that's what she said. And so so the umbilical cord, when you're tethered to it, it's like you're floating until you're you're severed, and then coming back into your body is like you're you're thrusted mm-hmm. back in. That so, was not pleasant. Um, but no, I you know the actual afterlife, the actual consciousness and what you're seeing 
um, you're floating. I mean, people talk about astral travel. They talk about um, the ability to to feel things empathically around them, those spirits around you. And I continue to feel that there's, there is a, um, a pleasant vibration around that. The sadness I felt and what I feel like a lot of people are when they're afraid of death is that they'll never physically be able to touch their loved ones again, that there will be a, a gaping hole in their life because they, you know, life goes on and they are not there physically to take up space but they do matter and they do exist. And we go from a solid to a gas, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we're still around. We're still, we're still made of energy. We just transition from one form to another. Oh, it's like water. I mean, you could be ice, you can be gas, you can be liquid. It could be many different forms right. of, of the same, but it's all water. Right. It's all water. Uh, so I have to ask you when you came back and you actually, after your regression therapy and, you had figured out what happened and you kind of processed, I'm assuming that helped you process all it of this a lot. Uh, what was the relationships in your life like afterwards? Because did you come in, come back, I assume differently than when you left? I did. I mean, my background, like I said, it was in TV. So I produced a lot of crazy exploitative reality shows and, you know, we work in a really crazy industry and it's fun. It's an adrenaline rush. It's, um, you know, we're not thinking of really consequences. We're looking at ratings and, um, and sales. And when I came back, um, there are things that unfortunately I can't do like the average mom can, I, I can't do the, the school parties or the, the play dates and get to talk frivolously. I don't, I don't mm. laugh as much as I used to. Um, Why is that? Why more is that? serious? Uh, because I think once one goes through this kind of near-death experience or any near-death experience, you're acutely aware of how close a call it was. And it also, you remove the the bullshit meter. So when you meet people, right. yes, I'm much more empathic and I feel things, but I'd rather connect with you with a real moment than just talk about sports or the weather. Right. And so that that when you have those kind of deeper connections, inevitably you get to a really vulnerable place. And whether I see you again and speak to you again, that moment is incredibly real and incredibly important to me because those are connections I'm making now based on who I am and what I've shed in the past. And so I feel things differently and I wish, I do wish that I could be that mom at the school that could join the PTA and, and be very involved with, you know, big school functions and celebrate. I, I can produce the heck out of a party, but I'm, I'm somewhat removed and it's only because I feel too much from people and I feel, I, I feel their pain at a level that I've never felt before. And so in order to stay grounded, I have to distance myself a little bit and it come, might come off aloof or it might come off, uh, you know, that I'm difficult to get to know, but the reality is, is that's, that's not the reality. It's because of the trauma and not wanting to re-traumatize myself because I'm feeling other people's pain at, at a much greater level. That's really, it's fascinating. Um, when people are empaths, uh, they, they tend to uh, bring in, get pulled into drama. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I don't know about the other people that you've interviewed that have had near death experiences, but I'm sure there's certain similarities that, you know, oh, you, yeah, there's no question. Listen to, I mean, first of all, you're, you're a wholly unique story. Uh, there's nothing, I've not heard this kind of near-death experience before. I, no one I, that I've ever heard of saw it coming. Definitely not three months out. So that's a very unique uh, a, a part of it. But that's why I was asking, like, what did you see on the other side? Things like that. They're very, there's a bunch of common denominators. The pain that you feel when you're being you're thrust back in, it was like a, a slamming into the body. It's, I've heard that again and again and again. Um, it's it's really really interesting how do you well first of all did you get when you came back did you get anything you had you had intuition you had these kind of abilities to a certain extent prior 
are you more supercharged now uh, after you came back? Are you, are they more heightened? Are you dealing with more of that? Yeah. Um, so I talk about like that I was on low voltage with my, my grandmother and my uncle as a child. Um, then you asystolic, which is no electricity running through your body. And now I'm on high voltage. Now it's more of, uh, I feel it, but it's been a few years now. So for me, I choose, I walk into a room or I give a speech. I mean, the, the speech that I gave in front of 3000 people, I was like, God help me, like, just put a shield. Let me get through this because if I start feeling everybody in the audience, it's going to be a problem that I, I won't even be able to get up. So, so I've learned how to ground myself differently, um, but it's also taken, it's been a process to accept that what this is, is real. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because for the longest time and being married to who I'm married and then also questioning like, you know, what happens if I didn't speak up? Like what happened if I didn't believe what was feeling? What, what happens if I were you and saying, okay, I'm crazy. You know, like I'm just going to shut up because obviously the tests are, are negative. You know, that scares me periodically because I'm like, I am intuitive enough to feel it, or I was given those messages that I was intuitive, intuitive enough to listen to them. And if I didn't, uh, and what happens again, if it happens, if other things happen, if I, if I choose to ignore them, what will the outcome be? And so I no longer, I no longer question that it's, it's not real because for, I think I wanted to question the, the validity of it all and thinking thinking that I made it up, which is also the reason why I documented everything along the way. I'm like, I have to keep myself so honest about every single process because as a reality TV producer, you know, we, we do enhanced reality. And I'm like, this is my own reality in this enhanced or like in this supercharged world, this can't be real. And so if you start imagining where your brain and where you've been functioning your whole life, because I've been in TV since I was 14, like it's impossible to believe this is real, but thank God everything. Like I was constantly with all, everyone I told the Facebook posting, the goodbye letters, like Everything is so well documented in order to keep me honest about it. I was very, I'm like, oh my, I made this shit up, right? I was like, oh, it's, I made it up. And I, no one will let me, no one will let me get away with that ever. And that's good. What's really interesting about your story is I've heard of other traumatic uh, NDEs before people being pulled under trains and left on the side of a mountain, uh, hiking accidents. There's a traumatic, but yours is, is interesting because you have the trauma of knowing months ahead that it's coming. It's kind of like the, 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 the bliss that animals feel because they don't know they're going to die. But we have the burden of understanding mortality. So you had that compressed in a three-month process. So all the trauma you're dealing with is not as much the death as it is the process leading up to the death. Does that make sense? No, hundred <laughs> percent. But I mean, there's still through the process, I still had issues. You know, even when you hear me tell the story over all of the media, you know, I skip over, I gloss over again. So then I died for 37 seconds. And then I did this, blah, 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 you know, like, like I go like that and I move on. And, and, you know, it's been, I'd say that I, it, it has taken me a good eight years to wow. live in my body and actually feel that moment of flatline where it's in my body. I have a, a massive scar down the center of my body and, you know, doing any kind of acupuncture on it to just kind of alleviate the, the tissue damage and everything. When they stick a needle right through there, it's, it's like the floodgates open up. I cry. I, you know, I'm like, no, we're not going to go near there for a while. And so it's still holding on to that loss. 
And so there's no question that that area is still traumatized a tremendous amount. And little by little, I start peeling away at that onion because it's, it's tangled. It's definitely tangled. Why do you think this happened to you? What, what, what was the grander purpose of this as far as to help other people to teach you something like what, what, you know, is it part of your soul's, you know, I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm sure you've thought, I'm assuming you thought about this. I have, I, and you know, it depends on what you believe the, you know, for me personally, I don't find it's a coincidence that I worked in TV, that the biggest story I'm ever going to tell is the one that happened to me. And that I was primed at the moment that I was, that this happened, that most of my friends have grown in the industry and they were like, you need to share your story. And so, um, and so as a producer, there's one thing for entertainment value, great, fine, whatever. But the fact of the matter is like, you know, it was not easy to write a book. I was like, I would rather... I would rather create a reality show based around near death experiences. But um, when I started seeing people reaching out to me with their own foreboding or people not listening to them or the how to handle their traumas post, I realized that my voice is something that can help save lives. The story can help save lives. And all of us have a story and how you share it, when you share it, have the courage to share it, inserting yourself into the narrative of, of stories that are more spiritual in nature. And just like you said before in our pre-interview where, you know, taking that leap of faith and saying, okay, I'm going to leave this solid foundation and now move into this world of having these conversations that are very spiritual. You either are going to alienate some of the people, uh, some people that are just fearful of having this conversation. So are entirely skeptical and also be embraced by others. And because you're so grounded, people can feel like, okay, I can share this with you without feeling crazy. And so the more that I share the story, the more other people can say, I see myself in her. I had something similar to happen. And mind you, when I was going through all of this, I was Googling foreboding, pregnancy premonitions, and it didn't exist. And now that our story is out there, there are other people that can relate to it and say, hey, what if this is foreboding because I actually feel something is going to happen and this isn't anxiety and this isn't that and, you know, let's talk about it. Um, so it it will, in fact, help affect and save lives. And so that is my primary goal. I do not think my calling in this lifetime is to talk all about the afterlife, um, although I there's no doubt in my mind it exists. There were crazier stories that happened to me that um, you would be shocked that happened that in the, in the middle of like, I'll, I'll tell you one of them, I was with um, a very, very big Hollywood producer and they were considering and she was considering buying my rights. She read the book. Um, we were in the middle of this meeting, 10 people I did not know. And, um, and so we're sitting there and it's a big conference room and in the middle of the meeting, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack, but I know it's not mine. So I have two choices, right? So I have two choices and you can imagine, you can imagine you're sitting there with someone who can make or change your career, break your career. It doesn't matter. Like at this, at this point, I'm like, you know, I'm sitting there and it's this, this pain is getting tighter on my chest. And so one of my big MOs or my mottos are like, if you sense something, say something, right? If you, if you, if you sense it, say it because it might save your life. So I'm feeling this and I'm like, I'm sorry. Somebody in this room has a male family member who's just had a heart attack. Who in this room? Now I'm, I'm talking like a psychic and I'm like, who the hell am I? Right. And then this woman, this iconic woman in the industry says, you don't think I'm going to have a heart attack. And I'm like, no, but as she's talking, it's getting tighter on my chest. So I know it's coming from her. I'm like to this woman, I'm like, there's a woman standing next to you. She's screaming at you about a dress. I'm talking about a ghost in the middle of this pitch. No <laughs> one knows the side of me. And I most certainly don't know the side of me. So she's like, no, Stephanie, my mother's fine. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. She's like, Stephanie, here's your ballet ticket. Nice knowing you don't let the door hit you. Right. So I'm walking out. My agent is like, what's with the theatrics? And I said, 
I don't know what to tell you. I know I blew the pitch. And so I leave four days later, her CEO of a company calls me and is like, are you sitting down? And I said, yes. And so she, he says, so first of all, this woman wants to apologize to you. Her mother passed six years ago and she knew exactly the dress you were talking about. Um, but she didn't know you had these kind of psychic abilities. I said, okay, fine. Second, second of all, you know, everybody was weirded out. The office is split science and spirit, but she goes back to her office. This was in LA. She goes back to her office. She got a call from her sister in New York. Her father had a heart attack at the moment you were feeling it. She says, he's going to be fine. She don't ever want to talk about it again. And we're buying your rights. And so, <laughs> so, so. I don't feel like my <laughs> calling is to, I mean, maybe part of it is to validate these, these kind of things, but I feel like, especially with people who are on the fence, hopeful agnostics, if you will, skeptics, whatever it is, I feel like. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show maybe having these kind of things front and center in their face because this woman can change the world with one tv show and so when you have that kind of access to audiences worldwide you can affect change and you can then be part of the narrative to help people speak up because and validate their own their own feelings so um so i i, I really feel like the whole intuitive side and speaking up is more uh, the reason that the story is there. Yes, consciousness exists after flatline. Yes, there is life after death. Um, yes, it's unfortunate that we don't get to hold and hug, but the signs are still there. Um, and we continue to exist. We just transition. So, yeah. Are you afraid of death? No. Not anymore. The only right. the only thing is is what I feel what many others do is that I won't get to sleep next to my husband um, the way that I have before. And if some some other bitch does, but I will be right there. <laughs> I doubt that he'll ever be allowed afterwards. <laughs> All of a sudden, you just see a can, just like <laughs> right, right. My <laughs> And my little home, I'm going to be like right there. I'm like, don't even consider it. All of a sudden, <laughs> things just start falling off the, the mantle. Yep. He's like, oh, gosh, Stephanie. Hitting the head with a broom. It's like, that's <laughs> flying. Talk about <laughs> foreboding. Uh, <laughs> right. That's amazing. Um, Stephanie, I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all of my yep. guests. Um, what is the definition of living a good life? Hmm. I think living honestly and living with love. I, you know, my, I make mistakes every single day with my children, with my family, with my husband, but my intentions are coming from a real soulful place where I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to um, right. in, intentionally hurt anyone. And I think for, for me, even if I'm being honest and maybe the words that I choose are not the best, um, that there, the intention behind it is coming with love. Um, what is your mission in this life? My what? Your mission in this life. Like I said, I, I, I think it doesn't take a near death experience in order to have this happen. But for me, it definitely transitioned from, what I thought the definition of success was, which was monetary and accolades and bigger shows. And then you're on this hamster wheel that just keeps you going and the next greatest, the next biggest. Right. Uh, that most 100% has shifted. My mission now is not only to make sure my family is happy and healthy, to nurture and foster the love in my soulmate because there is no one person on this earth that matters more to me than him. And my, you know, you talk about your children, but my goal is to build these ind independent children who are going to rule their life with love. And I feel blessed to have even met my soulmate. And I want to, my mission in life is to always make him happy and be by his side and be at this cohesive unit so that we can do really great things in the world to 
you know, help the AFE foundations that we find a cure um, and protocols in place in hospitals. So no other family has to have another mom lose their life or baby lose their life. And um, to ensure everybody knows that their intuition is real, whether they believe that we are hardwired for it or it comes from a spiritual place, it doesn't matter to me as long as they trust it. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? Um, I, you know, I think that's, it, it's existential because each person has their own process to get there, but in living a good life where you're not hurting anyone, where you're loving, where you're caring and where you are fostering more love and, you know, the, the biggest like we talked about this before in a movie, like the biggest stakes are, you know, it's life or death. And if you can help stand in the way to prevent that from happening, then, then you do everything you can to make that happen. And where can people find out more about you, get your book and find out the good work you're doing? Yeah. Thank you. Um, you can go to stephaniearnold.net and you can see a lot of the, the the stuff there. You can watch the Netflix series, Surviving Death, or in episode one. Um, the book is available anywhere. The, the, the audio book came out with the Netflix show. There's the paperback and then there's also the, uh, the Kindle version of it. Uh, it's now in 12 languages and growing. So, and it, my Instagram and TikTok, I, I'm growing on TikTok. I actually like that format to my uh, my teenage daughter's broken heart. She's like, you hate it. You're ruining um, TikTok. Yeah. So it's Stephanie Arnold 37 or my Instagram is at Steph Arnold 37. Stephanie, it has been a pleasure and honor talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for doing the work that you're doing in the world. I, I truly, truly appreciate it, my dear. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank Stephanie so, so much for coming on the show and sharing her experience with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to get her book, 37 Seconds, all you need to do is go to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 119. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.